man, whew, that was some good conversation. I love that quote. We, we always try to throw up a quote about conversation. Love without conversation is impossible. So we enter now into our time of teaching to have a public conversation with God through his word. And uh, if you've got a copy of his word, the scripture, the Bible, would you grab it? And we're continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians and we're going to actually tackle two chapters today. Not two verses, two whole chapters. And the people say, no way. <laughs> Everything is possible with God. So, if you don't have a copy, there are some Bibles in the seat back in front of you. They look like this. And uh, if you do grab one of those, we're going to be on page 1015. So, uh, let me just pray as we enter into our time of teaching. What a joy it is to get to do this together in community. Father God, we uh, thank you. We're in awe of you. When we wake up in the morning, uh, we proclaim how wonderful you are, how amazing you are. That you would want to know us, that you would speak to us through your word and through your spirit, God. That we have community like this, a family in faith that we can come to and know more about you. Experience your presence and sing praise to your name. And so we thank you for everything that has happened and will happen this morning. All glory is meant for you. And so we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you've been tracking with us, we've just finished the gauntlet, and God's timing is always perfect. As the NBA playoffs wrap up, so does our time in Corinthians 5 through 7, which has a lot to say about how we use our bodies, particularly in the realms of singleness and marriage and, and uh, sexually. So, uh, super intense. It was as fun as me as it was for you. So, we're past that, and now we get to come to the fun uh, conversation about should we eat meat <laughs> sacrificed to idols? <laughs> and <laughs> it's a little bit easier, actually, uh, than what we've just come through. So, um, the big idea... For today's sermon, uh, at least what I'm titling it, is It's Not About Me. So you can put that if you're taking notes, it's not about me. And that actually happens to be, as uh, those of you who have been to our 14 Principles class know, Principle Zero at Sedaris, meaning it's the principle that all other principles hang from. So um, it's not about me. Why isn't it about me? Well, it can't be about both me and about Jesus. And we gather because of Jesus. Not because of any of you or myself. We are here because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's not about me. And Paul's going to give us a really clear example of that in the life of the church in Corinth that he helped to start because uh, some issues had come up. He's been sort of working through what seems to be either a letter that had been written to him where they had lots of questions. Well, what should we do about marriage? And what should we do about divorce? And what should we do about uh, remarriage? And and so we've been going through those things, and, and now he's going to say, he's going to answer their question, what should we do about meat sacrificed to idols? Um, and we're going to see how that answers the question and shows us that it's not about me, and it's not about you, but it's about Jesus. So uh, let me give you some needed context for what we're going to read today, because you probably haven't recently been to a temple in which uh, some animals were sacrificed and uh, there are also weddings there and things like this. Uh, so let me just explain what was going on in Corinth 2,000 years ago. So in Corinth, 
It was one of the many uh, uh, urban epicenters for idol worship in the ancient world. So as part of this worship, an animal would be brought before a priest uh, to be sacrificed. But only part of that animal was actually burned. So they'd cut off a part of the animal and they'd burn it on an altar as a way of appeasing the gods, their gods. And there was many gods in in Greece. Most of us learned that in school about the Greek pantheon of gods. Uh, The Romans adopted that pantheon of gods, changed their names because... They weren't creative enough to come up with their own, so they just, let's just give them some new names. And um, so they would participate, whether Greek origin or if you lean more towards Roman, there were temples to these gods. So they'd burn part of the gods, usually like the legs or the fat or the internal organs. And then the leftovers, uh, usually which was the best pieces of meat, were then often consumed uh, among the participants uh, that had come to worship that day at um, some sort of festive meal. Um, and then some of it was actually taken home to enjoy privately in your home. And then there's another part of it that would often be sold off uh, to vendors who would then sell it in a public marketplace. So there was meat that had been originally brought to the altar to be sacrificed kind of all over town. And it was hard to know. If you went to the marketplace, am I buying meat that was sacrificed to idols or is this just normal meat from the farm. And and so it was a difficult and very common question that they'd have. What do we do about that? Because it was taught by both Jews and by the Christians, Christianity being the evolution of the Jewish faith, Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people, that there is only one God. And so any worship of any other gods is a sin. God's a jealous God. Paul tells us, not in the petty sense, but in the sense of he wants to be worshipped by his people that he created, that he has saved, that he has rescued in both the exodus for the Jews and as Christians now we know through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the one perfect and last sacrifice of all. So eating food sacrificed to other gods would have been so contrary to The Jewish understanding of faith and also the Christian understanding of faith. So what do we do then with this food that seems to be everywhere? Or these temples that are a part of our life, we don't move out of Corinth when we become a Christian. We now worship Jesus as members of the city. Most of our friends still go to these temple festivals. Many weddings were probably had there. What do we do? How how do we do this? Right? These, These are tough questions. How much distance do we need from something that we know is contrary to God's will? It's difficult. So this posed a serious problem for all the believers in the church. Because when they ate as invited guests or persons at someone's home, or they bought meat in the marketplace, chances were that some of that came from animals sacrificed in the worship of a false god. So in that worship, consuming the meat and sacrifice to that uh, that idol was the same as participating in the worship of that idol. So, man, I don't want to worship another god. I know there's only one god. I get invited over to somebody's house. I eat the food they presented. This is hospitality culture. That'd be an ultimate insult to not eat the food presented. What do I do? How do I do this? And so in the next, he's going to take three chapters to talk about this issue. And he's going to talk about in three different, the three different realms in which you might come into contact with this dilemma. There is... Um, and we'll look at this today, there is the question of actually going to 
a temple and eating in the temple. That's what we're going to look at primarily today. Paul's going to have something to say about that. Then he's going to talk about meat purchased um, in the marketplace, where you're not quite sure when you go to the marketplace if the meat you're purchasing is has been sacrificed to idols. And then he's going to talk about the third space you might encounter this, which is in a private home when you're invited over as a guest. So that's why it takes him three chapters to get through it. It's a really serious and nuanced response that Paul gives. And the, over, and the overarching principle that I want you to take away from today is not necessarily should I or should I not go to a temple where there's been animal sacrifice, but why shouldn't I? Because Paul's going to say you shouldn't, but why? And he's going to say, because it's not about you. Okay, you ready? Let's go. Chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 to 4 and then pause, and then we'll keep going. He says this, Now about food sacrifice to idols. So he makes like this, he's just been talking about marriage, divorce, singleness. And he's like, okay, I'm done with that. Now let's talk about food sacrifice to idols. So clearly they've asked him this question. He says this, We know that we all have knowledge. And then it seems he's quoting something here. You see that in your, in, in, in your Bible? It says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know. He doesn't know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And, there is, uh, and that there is no God but one. Okay, pause here. I'm going to do three things today. I'm going to show you how someone, uh, something like uh, meat sacrifice, sacrifice to idols, and whether or not to eat it, is an opportunity to actually love your brothers and sisters in Christ with the peculiar kind of love of Jesus. If you're new and you're wondering what all these birds are about, We've said when the body of Christ all tunes into the peculiar wisdom of Christ, like European starlings, we begin to move synchronously in this strange and sometimes terrifying murmuration is what it's called. If you've ever seen pictures or videos of European starling birds, the way they move into these strange shapes like a computer screensaver. If you don't know what a screensaver is, that means you're young. <laughs> okay. How do we do that? Well... Meat sacrificed to idols is going to help us understand how we do that. How do we move together in this strange, peculiar wisdom of Christ? So the second thing I'm going to do then is I'm going to look at Paul applying what he says about this to a situation in his own life that's not meat sacrificed to idols. So he's going to apply his law of love to his own life. So we're going to look at that. That's chapter 9. And then the final thing is I'm going to take a next level look at why loving like this, loving like Paul, loving like Christ, is so terribly difficult and challenging for so many of us, including Paul's audience. Why is it so rare to love like this? So that's where we're headed. Now, did you notice a word repeated? So we're talking about meat and love now. Did you notice a word repeated in those first four verses of chapter 8? The word is know or knowledge. Seven times he uses the same word in four verses. Do you think he's trying to get our attention? Of course he is. 
The Greek word is gnosko, which means knowledge, and he uses seven forms of it. What is he doing? What is he pointing us back to earlier in his letter? This is one of the problems with preaching through a book of the Bible slowly. Well, he spent several chapters talking about the difference between the world's wisdom, the world's knowledge, and the knowledge given to us by Christ, the wisdom of Christ. And he's actually told us that there is a higher knowledge, which is having the mind of Christ. That's in chapter 2, if you remember. And so he's pointing us back now to start this conversation about food sacrifice to idols. He's pointing us back to, remember what I said about knowledge? Remember how I said, be careful about it? Because it can do something to your heart that's actually different than what Christ wants to do to your heart. So he's harking back to this so-called knowledge of the Corinthians. Remember what we said? Corinth and Greece in general was the knowledge, uh, knowledge center of the world. In many ways, Seattle is a knowledge center of the world. The Corinthians thought they were pretty smart. They thought they were pretty good philosophers. They were good at making arguments. And Paul's coming in saying, listen, your arguments are based on worldly logic, not gospel logic. So he's reminding them. Seven times he says, no, 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 no. And then he's going to say what? He's going to say that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's going to say they're not the same thing. So what is this mind of Christ? What is this different kind of knowledge? Well, Jesus famously said in his vines and branches in John chapter 15, he said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. So anyone connected to me, thinks like me, lives like me, acts like me, moves in the peculiar wisdom of me because they're connected. I'm the vine. I'm the life source. I'm the way. I'm the truth. And if you connected to me like a branch to a vine, you'll think like me. This is what Jesus said in that same speech. He said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Wow. To lay down your life for your friends. That's the wisdom of Jesus. So Paul's saying, you think you got knowledge, you think you got knowledge, you think you're so smart. Jesus says, he lays down his life for his friends. Is that your knowledge? What we're going to see is it's not. 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says. Love builds up. Like who? Like Jesus. This is the wisdom of Christ. And um, if you've been with us, you might have noticed that Paul's actually quoting a slogan that either the Corinthians had written to him in a letter or was just common in the day. It's hard to know which. But he actually, he actually referenced it also back in chapter 6, right before we got into all that talk about how to use our bodies sexually. You remember what that slogan was? What does he say? He says here, he quotes it again. Look at, that, look at it with me in verse 1. Excuse me. Um, 
Nope. Go back to 612 with me. He's referencing, he references this later. He says, everything, verse, this is 612, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible to me, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's actually going to use that argument in chapters 9 and 10 to talk about his own life and how even though everything's permissible to him, it's not all beneficial to either him or his brothers and sisters. So why does he keep coming back to this slogan? I think this is so important. He's using this slogan because this slogan is used for many different areas of life. That yes, in Christ, there's a new law, Paul will say in chapter 9, we'll read. It's the law of Christ. And so certain Old Testament law is no longer pressing on the people of God who are followers of Jesus. But he says, that doesn't mean I just have ultimate liberty to do whatever I want. He says, no, there's a higher knowledge, a higher wisdom that then informs that. And I think this is so important for us because we have slogans in our day. I mentioned this back when I talked about it in chapter 6. We have slogans in our day that are actually insinuating things that Paul would say not to do. The slogans of our day, like the slogans of Paul's day, the reason they become popular is because there's some truth in them. But it's only partial truth. And Paul is helping us to then apply our Christ minds to the slogans of our day and not fall into the implications or the insinuations of those slogans like so many in the world do. And that's what was happening in Corinth. They're applying some truth, some partial truth, and then living out untruth in their daily lives. So what we're actually looking for when we come into popular slogans of our day is we can highlight and celebrate the truth that's in them, but then say, but actually there's some higher truth or total truth claim that supersedes those popular truth claims. So, what does Paul say? He's he's particularly speaking to the more mature Christians in the church, probably the ones who had um, some authority and power, maybe even were teaching. And he says to them, yes, you do have knowledge. Yes, in some sense you understand what Christ has done for you, the freedom and liberty he's bought for you. But then what does he say? Look at verse uh, 7. He says this. He says, however, not everyone has this knowledge. Not everyone has it. Let's keep reading. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better off if we do eat. That's the true knowledge. He's like, that is true. You won't be worse off if you don't eat. You won't be better off if you do eat. But there are, he's, what he's saying is there are people who do still believe, even though they've come to follow Jesus, that there's some power and they're better off and, and they experience some good and they actually probably did. We'll get into this next week. There's often spiritual powers behind idol worship. So he's saying like there's some people who miss that. They really do think. I know you're thinking rightly. Your knowledge is right. You're not better off if you do. But not everybody has that knowledge. Not everybody understands that. So he says, verse 9, But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, 
So he's saying, if sees you, the mature Christian, the one that they recognize hasn't been a Christian longer or has strength in Christ, if they see you in the temple, dining in the idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Won't he then think, oh, I guess that's okay. That thing I've, I've been missing, that thing I've been longing, I, I, maybe it's not so big of a deal. Maybe I can go back to that. Maybe I have a little bit of both. Verse 11, so the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Wow. See what Paul's saying there? He's saying, your knowledge, which in some sense is true, is puffing you up so much that you can't see that your knowledge is actually killing your brother or sister in Christ. So not all knowledge is beneficial or just living according to this new knowledge that an idol is nothing. It doesn't actually mean it leads to life. Be very careful with the knowledge you have. So what is this root sin? We talked about this at our men's breakfast yesterday. What is the root sin behind this action? That I have this new knowledge, and therefore I live with liberty, and I go to the temple, and I participate knowing that there is no God but one. What's actually driving it, Paul's saying? Is it pride? Is it unbelief? Is it selfishness? What's really behind it all? Especially when we're talking about knowledge. It's pride. I'm so smart. I know, therefore I'll act and move in such a way that accords with my knowledge. It's my pride that's getting in the way, Paul says. That I think, I'm, I have all this new wisdom, this new insight. And so I don't think about, when he says weaker, he's, he's talking just here about not as strong in the faith. Not, not as understanding of, of what truly is going on in the spiritual realm. That my strength in that, that I don't use that for the good of others, I just use that for myself. That's pride. And did you catch a little word that he used there? How does arrogance and hubris often play itself out in the world? In verse 9, be careful that this right of yours no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. That's another interesting word. This right. Pride often attaches itself to your rights. My rights. Guess how many times he uses the word right between now and and the end of chapter 9? Eight times. Again, you think he's trying to point something out? You claim your rights here and your rights there. My rights. Rights, 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 rights. Usually if you say that a lot, you've got a pride problem. What is he trying to drive home? Christians 
because we follow Jesus, don't constantly grasp and hold on for dear life to our rights. Look at what, jump ahead with me to chapter 9, verse 19. And we'll get into chapter 9 here in just a sec. But Paul makes this amazing claim about him giving up his own rights. He says this, 919. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. More people to what? To Christ. That is an incredible, incredible statement. There is a higher law that is about so much more than your freedoms and your rights and your liberty. It's not a question of can I? Christians ask the question of should I? Again, chapter 9, verse 22. Let's read this. 22 to 23. Paul's talking here about this law. He says, Though I am not without God's law, this is just before verse 22. Though I'm not without God's law, but under the law of Christ to win those without the law. To the weak, I become weak in order to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Not, uh, now I do all of this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings of what? Of the gospel. Paul's asking Seriously, guys, what are we doing here? And he's, and he's asking a literal question. What are we doing here on this earth? Are we here to get everything we can for ourselves? Or to share in the blessings of Christ, which is the expansion of his loving heavenly rule and reign in the hearts and minds of all people and to taste the fruits of eternity even now? What are we doing here? So can I eat in a temple? Can I go to a temple festival? Can I go to a temple restaurant? Can I go to a temple banquet, a temple wedding, where meat's been sacrificed to idols? Sure, I can. But Paul will say, but you shouldn't. Because you may end up causing a brother or sister to stumble back into that idol worship that's going to just kill their new life in Christ. It's going to suck the soul out of them. And Christ died for them so they could be free from that. They may actually be destroyed because of it. He's saying, not worth it. What are we here for? This will become more clear in the final part of our talk tonight. At that next level of why this is so hard. So the simple directive of chapter 8 goes like this. Do not eat Meat sacrificed to an idol in an idol temple on the precinct. Paul's going to make different comments about the marketplace. He's going to make a different comment about if you're invited over to a guest's house that has that kind of meat. So he's saying it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Circumstances are different. But he is saying best not to eat food sacrificed to an idol in the temple of that idol. Because it may cause your brother or sister to return to idol worship. If they see you, the mature, knowledgeable believer, 
doing that very thing. So he's saying, surrender your right. Give it up. Out of next level love for your brothers and sisters. And this is the law of love. This is the law of Christ's love. And that's why Paul, this is so important to him and why he spends three chapters talking about it. Paul again and again is attaching his answer to the annoying why question. Well, why, Paul? Well, why, Paul? Why can't we, Paul? I thought Christ did this for us, Paul. Why, why, why? He's so annoyed by the why. <laughs> the annoying why, he, he's so annoyed by that why question because they can't seem to get through their minds that it's not about their liberty. And it's more about their brother or sister's freedom from sin. I'm not going to do a lot of direct application for you. This is part of why we do cohorts. How does this apply in our world today? Where we're more concerned about our rights or our liberties than we are about our brother or sister's freedom from their sin. From sin that sucks them in, that sucks their soul, that weakens them. We all might have a different answer to that question. Now, what is the scope of, Paul, uh, of Paul's original address about this? Meaning, how long would we have to give up our rights or our freedom out of brotherly love? Look at chapter 8, verses, verse 13. He says this, Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat. Implied here? in the temple court that's been sacrificed to idols so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Guess what the word never means in the Greek? Never. <laughs> that's like, never again. What? For my whole life? You mean not because I struggle with it or it's a particular problem for me, but because a brother or sister struggles with it? Never again? Never? Whoa. That's peculiar love. For who? Not for your wife, your husband, which we just talked about, to love them with peculiar love. He's talking about, look to your left or to your right, your brother or sister in the faith. Them? Never again for them? I barely know them. Well, that's part of the problem. The reason why Paul's discussion about singleness and celibacy before marriage and after marriage or after divorce, for many people that will be their entire lifetime, for his directives about sex, premarital sex, sex outside of a union between one man and one woman, all that, why that's so troublesome to us and why we, it, it's almost impossible for us to believe that a loving God would give these kind of directives is because we don't get what Paul says in chapters 9, 8, and 9. That your love for your brother or sister in Christ means that you would stop doing something for the rest of your life because you love your brother or sister that much. Spiritual friendship, as Jesus has described, as we read earlier in the vine and the branches, that you'd give up your life for your friend, not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, your friend in Christ, that you'd give up your life for them, that that's an example of his love. We're so far from that, friends, that that's why we can't understand how everyone could live a good life 
in any of these other ways than besides what we've said is the blessed state. That's the problem. And that's a challenge to all of us to do spiritual friendship way different than we do it. Never again, Paul says, for a mere brother or sister, a mere friend in Christ, I would never again do something that I was doing before, not because it bothers me, but because it hurts them. Do you understand the depth of spiritual friendship that he's talking about here? I don't, to be honest, because I fall short of this command of Christ. He says, I command you. If you're my friend, you will follow my commands. And I tell you to give up your life for your friend in Christ. Verses 8, 13, 9, 19, becoming a slave to all. This is the kind of spiritual friendship that Paul has in mind. This is the otherworldly kind of friendship that he lays out to the Corinthians. This is what all the other commands, they ride off of this. If you had this, be so much easier to walk with Christ in this world. All those problem texts, so those difficult decisions, that narrow path that Christ, Christ calls us to be so much easier if you were walking it with real friends, the way Jesus talks about friends. This is a call, this is a challenge to us to do this friendship a lot better in the church. Paul hits this point again. I mean, he just keeps coming back to this. In his second letter to the Corinthians, which is in the Bible referred as 2 Corinthians, though it was his third letter, but we call it 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just read it to you. Listen close. For the love of Christ controls me because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message. Be reconciled to God. He's made a way through Jesus. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see this? Paul's just like, we've got such a low view of this calling, of this life, of what it means to be brothers and sisters in the faith, what it means to be given the ministry of reconciliation, what it means to be proclaimers of reconciliation. Which brings me to our second movement, chapter 9. Let's look at Paul's application of this peculiar love in his own life. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read it quick. So read with me. 
So he's just said, I will never again eat meat if that's what it takes. He says this, I, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul had seen Jesus after his resurrection. If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to you, to those who who examine me, is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles and like the Lord's brother, even like Cephas, that's Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own or who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, that's in the Old Testament in the Bible. Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, meaning let the oxen eat the grain as they're treading it out. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake, because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes uh, should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much to reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Now hold on, pause. (laughs) You're like, what in the world does this have to do with meat sacrifice? He's giving an example from his own life, and what is the example? He's saying, listen, I do have a right to take a salary as an apostle, as your pastor, as an itinerant preacher, as a public teacher, which would have been so common in Corinth, there would have been these so-called public teachers that were paid to go into wealthy houses and teach philosophy and things like this. So both the world would say, yes, Paul should be paid. Both the Church of Christ would say, yes, Paul would be paid. For other apostles got paid, and other teachers and other pastors got paid. So Paul's saying, even the Old Testament says I should get paid. And look what he says next. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. See what he's doing? He's saying, like, there's so many examples of having rights, but choosing not to live into those rights or demand those rights because for some reason the gospel's at stake. Or the gospel could be hindered if I accept that right. So I don't do it when it comes to receiving money from you guys. He goes on. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services, he's now talking back in Jerusalem, eat the food from the temple? He's actually talking about back in Jerusalem for the Jews and also for in the Greek context. And those who serve at the temple share in the offerings of the temple, meaning like when somebody would bring food, the priest got to take the food home. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. For my part, I have used none of these rights, nor have I written these things that they may be applied in my case. So he's like, just to be sure, I'm not saying this as a way of guilting you into starting to pay me. He's saying, I'm not asking that. I'm just making a point here. I'm giving an analogy. For it would be better for me to die, probably of starvation because he can't buy food, than for anyone to, be depri- uh, to deprive me of my boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because I am compelled to preach. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's saying, I don't preach the gospel because you pay me to preach the gospel. I preach because God compels me to preach the gospel. He's called me to preach the gospel. I'm nothing special. I'm just an instrument of God, so I preach the gospel. 
Not because of anything I get, or even because I want to be seen as special. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because I... Oh, sorry, I just read that. (laughs) compelled to preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge, and to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more, to, more people. To the Jews, I have become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I have become as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without a law. To the weak, I have become... All uh, week, I become all things to all people that I, by every possible means, save some. Now, I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings of the gospel. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control and everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown. But we, who's that? We, the people of God, the followers of Jesus, we, an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one who's beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Whoa, a long argument to do what? To prove his point in chapter 8. That we all, himself included, give up rights so that, what? So that what? This is the big so that. So that you might receive a prize that is imperishable. He illustrates that in verses 24 to 27. The imperishable, eternal prize that is so much greater than any temporary fleeting prize like money or getting to go to the parties at the temple or whatever that might be, that it's almost laughable to him that you would trade one prize for the other. So you get a prize. So, so it's okay to, to do some of this with some incentive, but that's not the main so that. What's the main so that? Let's read them again. 9.12. What does 9.12 say? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. 9.18. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge. 9.23. Now I do all this because of the gospel. So, so that I will not hinder the gospel, to preach the gospel because of the gospel. The main so that, the main reason to live a life where you give up rights is so that the gospel takes root and bears fruit in people's life. That's Paul's so that. Why is this gospel so central to his argument? What is it about the gospel that really is the reason why you would even live like this? This is the reason. The Son of God gave up every right. Every right. He was and is the king of heaven. He created all things. He possesses all things. And the scripture tells us that he did not cling to those things, meaning he freely gave up those rights so that he could become a servant of sinners. So that 
he could become a slave to grace so that he could become under heaven so that he might bring many to heaven. He became such a servant, such a slave. He gave up all these rights, even to the point of torture, even to the point of death on the cross, even to the point of ultimate humiliation, so that he might save those whom the Father gave to him. That's you. That's me. So who am I to say that I shouldn't have to give up any rights? That I shouldn't have to give up some liberty or some freedom if the king of heaven has given up everything for me? You see why the gospel is so central to Paul? Paul's reminding us of this Sidera's principle zero. It's not about me, Paul says. It's about Jesus. It's about his gospel. It's about the good news of salvation by grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's about people being reconciled to God, staying reconciled to God, not falling back into destructive sin, not falling back into worshiping false gods and multiple gods. And if that means I've got to be mindful of the example that I'm setting, even if I know I have freedom to do certain things, I'll change that way. I'll live the rest of my earthly life giving up certain rights so that others might experience the eternal blessings of God. Why? Because Jesus did that for me. This isn't rocket science. It's, It's so simple and yet so hard to actually do. If you were writing this letter to the Corinthians, would you have an example like Paul does? Would you have an example of some right that you've given up, that you know with a clean conscience that you could live into, but you give it up for the weaker conscience of your brother or sister in Christ? Is there anything, when you look back on your life of following Jesus, that you could say that of? And if not, why? Why not? Do you truly know that God loved you like this? That Jesus gave up his rights for yours? Do you know that? Or is it just an idea that you hear over and over again? Do you think about what he gave up for you? Now imagine a world where everyone thought like this. That everyone gave up their rights to yield to a higher authority to say, I'll give up my rights to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. Would a world like that need a holiday like we'll celebrate today and tomorrow? No. Seriously, what would the world look like if everyone lived like this? If everyone followed the example of Christ if everyone took serious what it means to be a follower of Christ like Paul and live their life like this. This would be the kingdom of God, people. This is why we preach about this and we tell people this is our king because we see what this could do to the world and what the world would become. And I bet not just in this building, but the whole world longs for this vision. 
We want this vision. So why won't this vision come to pass? Here's the answer. Even though it's the world we all desire, I'm talking about all of us, because it's written on our heart, even though the whole world wants this in one respect, even though this is the world Jesus is offering, why do so many people reject it? Because, to be honest, we love ourselves more than we love that vision. We say we love that vision, but when push comes to serve, we love ourselves more. Which brings me to my third movement here. Let's look at the next level understanding of why loving like Christ loved is so challenging and so rare. Why is it so challenging? Why is it so rare? To understand that, we need to understand, uh, we've got to take a deeper look at the situation in Corinth. What's happening in Corinth, it's not so simple, you see, to just stop going to the temple. Because what was at the temple? The temple is my social life. The temple is where I make business connections. The temple is where everybody goes. So to say that I had to give that up for my brother and sister who have a weaker conscience, this is a big deal. It is going to be so easy to rationalize the eating of meat in that context that's been sacrificed to idols by appealing to knowledge, some, some philosophical gymnastics to say, but it's actually not nothing because we know there is but one God and there's only one God and so it's not a big deal. Idols are nothing. And, and Paul quotes that in chapter 8. I'm going to do the gymnastics because the chief reason for my participation at these festivals or these banquets or the weddings that happen at the temple is because of the social pressure in my polytheistic culture. This is the way everybody else lives in my culture. To remove myself from that is to potentially have much harm to myself. My neighbors will observe. Not only have they rejected the pagan gods, they're not even coming to the temple anymore. They're kind of weird. I don't want to be a part of friendship with them anymore. I might not want to do business with them anymore. So the, the Corinthians quite naturally did not want to give up their family, their social connections, and so they made compromises. And they justified it post hoc. And it's totally understandable. It's not even my problem. Paul says it's not, Paul says it's not even a problem. So I've got to give it up for my weaker brother or sister? I've got to keep going. I've got I to keep going, right? I mean, God wouldn't really want me to give up my status. He wouldn't want me to give up my business networking. He, he wouldn't want my, my business to fall into unsuccess. He wouldn't want me to give up my social capital. God wouldn't want me to be seen as uncool. And look at the this is the gymnastics we do. God wouldn't want me to be seen as uncool because then people would think the gospel's uncool and they would never accept it if it was uncool. So I got to do whatever I need to do 
I've got to post whatever I need to post. I've got to show up to whatever party I need to show up to so that I remain cool in the eyes of my unbelieving friends so that they receive the gospel. And that's what Paul said. I become all things to all people that I might save some. Boom. I'm good. Whatever I need to do. Whatever I need to do for the gospel. You see the gymnastics I did in my head? Dave, why are you so good at those gymnastics? I did it for 26 years of my life, and I was a superstar. I was an Olympic-level philosophical gymnast, telling myself that I was doing the things I knew I shouldn't do or that might make my brother stumble so that I might be in proximity to unbelievers, and then I justified it in my hand. But really, when I look at my heart, I was being selfish. I like being cool. I like those friends. I like those parties. I like those things. I don't want to give them up. Wouldn't be good for my career. Wouldn't be good for my advancement. Wouldn't be good for me. And then I would cover it up in this spiritual language of it's all for the gospel. I use my superior knowledge, I use my liberty so that I can take the gospel places others can't. You see, it's all for the gospel. Let me use a totally absurd example, but it gets to the point. You know what? If I just all of a sudden stopped going to the strip club, how would the men of the strip club come to Jesus? That's what I'm saying. You see what I did? Paul says, stop doing that. That is not the way this works. You've got to be super honest about why it's so hard to give up your rights for the sake of others. And nine times out of ten, it's because you are thinking about yourself, not them. You don't want to be seen as uncool. You don't want to be seen as old-fashioned. You don't want to be seen as a prude. And then you do the gymnastics to say, I'm doing it for the gospel. Don't do that. It's not good. It's not actually helping anyone. So where do we see something like this happening in our world? I'm going to leave that up to you primarily. Where do we see something clinging to certain people that if you were to participate in it, or approve it either either explicitly or implicitly might actually lead a brother or sister back into that thing that for them is actually soul-sucking? This is a hard question. It's not so obvious in a country that's built on the roots of Christianity, right? We don't have pagan temples everywhere. This is much easier to see in other contexts. Uh, many, Many of us are coming from an international context. This will be much easier, so share your experience with your friends. Share your experience in your cohort. In international context, it's obvious that people have experienced power even and benefit from participating in the worship of false gods. So it's, it, there is almost an apples to apples. In the U.S., it's harder to see. What could that be? Perhaps something like participating in gambling. For you, it's not a problem, but for your brother or sister, I mean, they worshiped it. That's where they found their hope. That's what got them up in the morning. Maybe today I'll win big. Maybe something like that. Could be something like yoga. For some people, it's just exercise. For other people, there's a history of deep spiritual practice attached to it. Maybe it's there. I don't know exactly 
(laughs) I tried to figure it out. Maybe it's an old relationship. Maybe you, you have a friend who's got a relationship with someone who you know is not healthy for them, and somehow you're continuing that friendship or inviting that person to your house for barbecue or whatever it might be, actually draws them back into that relationship that you know was unhealthy for them, that took them further from Christ. I don't know, right? So you've you got to get creative. You've got to allow the Spirit of God to sit and wrestle. And, and if you think of something in the next song, jot it down so that you could bring that into your cohort and talk about it. How does this play out? How, what would this look like in our day and age? I don't know exactly. But I know the reality is real. It's as true today as it was then. It just looks different. And we're going to need to work together to figure that out and to walk in the way of Christ, to move together in the peculiar wisdom of Jesus so that we might love one another well, that the gospel of grace goes forth that we might be ministers of reconciliation and that people will experience eternal life even now. Let's pray.